This is the first in an occasional series where I'll choose some of my favourite history books, read you a short extract and present a quick review. We're all stuck in lockdown of some kind, so maybe you're looking for something to read. Now, these are going to be short little podcasts, so let's get straight to it. The book I've chosen to start with is Shadows on the Tundra. Okay, let's stop there. I hate the title. It sounds like the title of a wispy, dreamy romance novel. I can imagine the title in gold script on the front cover. A woman in a headscarf raises a hand to her thin face, looking out across the tundra, waiting for her brave soldier to come home from the wars. So, not a great title for a book, which could not be further from anything like that. Anything which is so cheesy and limp and swoony. Firstly, it's a memoir, and it is brutal. The book is famous in Lithuania, where it is a set text in schools, but I had never heard of it until 2018. In fact, I only discovered it by happy accident. I'd pitched a book review idea to the TLS. The editor said no, but asked if I'd review this one instead, Shadows on the Tundra. I said yes. Well, (laughs) you don't say no to the TLS. And when the book arrived... The title tripped me up. Shadows on the Tundra. Sounds like some stupid Oprah book club thing. Don't they know at the TLS that I'm hardcore? But as I said, ignore the title. It doesn't bear any resemblance to the absolute horror and power of this short memoir. Uh, That's Zarbomba there snoring behind me. Let me read my TLS review to you, it's just a short one, and if it does its job it will tell you neatly what this incredible book is about, and then I'll read you an extract from it. Who is best equipped to survive the gulag? A man in ruddy middle age, or a schoolgirl stepping onto the ice in her light summer coat? The girl is Dahlia Grinkvichuti, I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Deported from Lithuania in 1941 and taken by train to the Arctic to, quote, resettle the North, she began composing this excruciating memoir in 1949 while in hiding. By the time the authorities seized her, the pages were safely buried in the garden. They were found by happy accident in 1991. Her book has now been translated so we might share this harrowing attack on the Soviet system by a defiant girl who hauled logs and built houses, but made sure to hug her mother, notice the boys, and sometimes pause in the snow to flick rude gestures with her frozen fingers. Arriving in Trofimovsk on the freezing Laptev Sea, the arrivals see nothing but vast, colourless tundra. If they want shelter, they will have to build it. So the deportees, Lithuania's elite, still in their city clothes, become slave labourers in that, quote, long polar night. They erect a shaky barracks, but when winter descends, snow buries the dwelling, and they are entombed. People starve and rave in the darkness, and are only saved when someone remembers they're there, and tosses a few loaves down the chimney. In this black hole, the only warmth is from the snow itself, 
which Dahlia learns when she packs it across her body, making a snow blanket. When the blizzards ease, the survivors emerge to begin fish processing, plunging their raw hands into brine and salt. Dahlia rages at the maddening Soviet logic, which starves its workers while demanding productivity. The food ration is often a handful of flour, which people chew into a raw dough. Because of their depleted state, much of the catch rots. So, quote, the pile of corpses keeps on growing, a monument to the Soviet system. Dahlia's suffering is so breathlessly cruel that the gulag may have been plucked from some dark early century. But her voice, angry, sulky, sarcastic, brings it hurrying into the present. Will she weaken? Quote, hell no, not on your life. Will she survive? Quote, I want to live, damn it. But if the voice belongs to an angry teen, the writing comes from a cool, ruthless observer. She berates an economic system that produces not goods, but icy corpses which clatter like sticks when thrown into the pit, while those buried by the weather leave their frozen hair poking through the snow. She also shows the human spirit flickers and flares in line with hunger. It seems almost anything can be endured if it's delivered with a splat of pea soup. Perhaps it's relatively simple to keep a body alive. It's the spirit that needs particular care. But Dahlia's voice is so hot and defiant, it's clear that both survived that long polar night. And as promised, I'll read you a couple of short extracts. The first describes Dahlia's train journey from Lithuania up into the Arctic. Remember, she's just a 14-year-old girl at this point. If only I could sleep, if only for a minute, even a second. The train rocks from side to side as it speeds along at full throttle, howling dully. The 72 people in our wagon are sleeping on their feet their eyes open. I can feel someone breathing beside me and shivering. It's Jean Marcuscotti, the tubercular ten-year-old girl with skin the colour of lemons, sunken eyes, blue lips. She has the chills while I'm roasting. Lice crawl solemnly over her neck and shoulders, then cross over to me and disappear. Krasnoyarsk This hellish train journey has now lasted a week. In the darkness, a small light flickers from the ceiling of her wagon. Is it possible that I once used to sleep at night? That I was able to stretch out my legs? No, it's beyond belief. There's no room to move. My legs have swollen up. A haze has settled over everyone in the wagon. I see Jean's face as though in a dream. She's coughing at me. Why in hell have we had to breathe in each other's face and fatten each other's lice for the past five days? Now they're brawling, the vipers. Some fat idiot is hitting Jean's mother with a stick for leaning against him. Bastards, scumbags, they'll be dead soon enough. Yet they're at each other's throats. If only there were fewer people, even one or two fewer, there'd be more room to breathe. Screams, hysteria, any minute now I'm going to die of suffocation. I dream without sleeping. 
the journey is inhumanly long. I find myself wishing the train would fly off its tracks, that the wagons would smash open, anything, just to be able to breathe. I must be going mad. And here is an extract from when they've arrived at the Arctic and have built their own barracks, but winter arrives and the first terrible blizzard comes. Shut up, Bomba. When did the blizzard begin? When would it end? It feels like a lifetime since we've had any contact with the outside world. We've been buried alive, 12 days straight. Even if the blizzard were to stop, we wouldn't be able to crawl out because the long, tube-like passage we dug with our hands to the outside has been plugged solid. The door, which the wind ripped off its hinges, has been tossed under the bunks. It never closed anyway, it was coated with ice. Totoritis is using it as a bed. There's a mountain of snow in the middle of the room, which the storm blew in through the hole we'd excavated to the outside. But this is good. It keeps out the whirlwind. The blizzard has buried our brick barracks. Its flat roof is level with the snow outside. There are gaps between the ceiling boards which clatter softly in the wind. The powdery snow falls on our heads and pallets. We have pulled up the floor, shaved wood from the beams that support the ceiling and chopped up the benches, as well as the boards that separate one family's bunks from another, for firewood. There is no reason to get up, nor does anyone have the strength. For the last five days, ever since someone threw three small loaves of black bread down the stovepipe, no one has had anything to eat. It goes on to say, we've covered ourselves with everything we own, plus a snow blanket on top. It does provide warmth. The snow is everywhere. Our pillows, our hair. You stick your head out, take a deep breath, slip under the covers again and breathe out. It feels warm. The snow in your hair melts, then turns to ice. A winter hat. Silence. Darkness. The only thing visible is the snow. So here we are, creatures who once thought of themselves as human who laughed, flirted, called friends and invited them to visit, who planned summer holidays after exhausting winters of work in the city, who fumed because the tailor had botched an order or because a two-room apartment seemed small. All are silent. But then, they are no longer here. The people they used to be have long gone. They died on 14th June. All that's left in the 13th barracks are the dead and the nearly dead. Only three categories of people remain. The corpses, the soon-to-be corpses, and the dying who might survive. These survivors will bear witness to the horrific trials they've undergone, but by then, each will have become someone else.